Welcome to Psychbusters. Here we explore careers in psychology with the people who built their own, busting some psychology myths along the way. Made with and for sixth form student psychologists. Hello and welcome to Psychbusters. I'm Sakshi. And I'm Anjali, and on this episode, we are joined by Dr. Katie Young, a psychologist and lecturer at the Social, Genetic and Developmental Psychiatry Centre at the King's College London. We look forward to hearing about Katie's background in neuroscience and clinical psychology and her research into the development and maintenance of anxiety and depression in adolescents. Hi, Katie. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We're really excited to having you here today. We'll start off with the first section about your career journey. Can you please tell us a little bit about your current role and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thanks so much for having me today. It's really uh, fun to talk to you and think about uh, things a bit more generally, I guess, than I do on a normal day-to-day basis. Um, So yeah, uh, I'm a lecturer at King's College London. My background is in neuroscience and clinical psychology research. Um, And my current focus is on anxiety and depression in young people. Uh, So my work tries to use tools from neuroscience like neuroimaging and experimental testing um, and try to apply those to the context of clinical psychology. So how can we use neuroscience to better understand how treatments for depression and anxiety work how we can use our understanding about the brain and how it's different in uh, during anxiety and depression, how we can use that to improve how effective our treatments are and learn new things and sort of develop new ways of treating and intervening uh, for people who are at high risk for anxiety and depression. That sounds really great. Um, would you mind telling us how you got to this position and whether the way your trajectory was the typical route or was a bit of a atypical route? Yeah, um, I think big picture, it's a fairly typical route. So uh, for me, I've always just been really interested in psychology, interested in people and trying to think about how people work. Um, and I think for me, it sort of comes from a more physiological background. So, you know, when I studied biology in school, I was always, you know, really interested in how say the kidney works, how it processes different uh, chemicals and how we, uh, you know, can understand this sort of physical system and how it works uh, in our bodies. And so for me, sort of understanding the brain is just sort of the most exciting thing you can do to understand this organ and how it creates different individuals and how we act in different situations. So uh, I went to study psychology at university. After that, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I was thinking about clinical psychology. Uh, but I started to, you know, just try and get a few different experiences. I actually worked for um, a charity for children with special needs um, for a year after graduating. Um, I then got a research job. So I worked as a research assistant uh, within a psychology and neuroscience lab. Um, and from there, I did my PhD in the same department. So it was kind of a, you know, a nice way to get a, a taster of what research is like before you commit to doing, you know, another degree. Um, so that worked quite well for me. And then um, 
finishing my PhD, I actually moved abroad um, for a postdoc, which is usually what you call the, the job you get right after a PhD, where you're working in somebody else's lab, you're doing research, but it's before you're sort of leading your own lab and sort of running your own research team. So it's a kind of like a more senior scientist sort of role. Um, so for me, I went to the States at that point um, and I joined a clinical psychology lab. Um, at that stage, I was very much a neuroscientist, so I was a bit of a fish out of water there. Um, but I was sort of, I've always kind of been interested at this intersection between neuroscience and physiology in the brain, but what it actually means in terms of mental health and how we can think about interventions and treatment. So um, that was a great opportunity for me to go and join a clinical research lab and think about ways that we could uh, bring neuroscience into the work that they were doing. Um, so I spent about five years uh, in the States working in that lab. Um, and then I uh, yeah, got a job as a lecturer at King's where I'm now sort of building my own lab and slowly uh, sort of growing my team. I have one PhD student at the moment and I now just have my own uh, postdoc who's who started working with me as well. So it's a, a fairly natural progression there, maybe moving a little more than some, some people do, but um, yeah, fairly typical route, I think. That sounds super interesting. How did you decide to make the decision of moving abroad? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, there's certain periods of time where you sort of have to make kind of bigger decisions about where, what you want to be doing uh, with your life. One of them obviously is when you're finishing school and you're deciding if you're applying to college or to university or um, for jobs. And so it tends to be the sort of thing where you have a lot of options and so you're applying for different things or trying to, to make choices. For me, the sort of decision to move abroad was, was quite similar. So when I finished my PhD, um, I was quite keen for a change. I think, you know, a lot of the time when you sort of worked very hard on something, you want to <laughs> do something a little bit different. Um, so I knew that I wanted to move to a new city, potentially. Uh, to a new country um, and my, my PhD itself was sort of I guess like I mentioned a bit between neuroscience and clinical psychology so my PhD was actually focused on postnatal depression um, and we were scanning people uh, whilst they were listening to sounds of baby cries so uh, the, the research was all about uh, why in postnatal depression are you maybe less motivated uh, to care for your baby? Why does the depression in that period impact um, how reactive you are to, to your baby's cues? So for me at that stage, I was sort of between, I could have gone a kind of auditory neuroscience route, you know, thinking more about how the brain processes sounds and emotional sounds and, and thinking about it from a very brain focused way. Uh, or I could have gone the more clinical route, which is, is what I ultimately did, thinking more about depression and how we can use neuroscience to, to better understand depression. So for me at that stage, when I was finishing my PhD, I just applied for a lot of different things. <laughs> I was sort of one of these people that I, I don't know that I always know what I want, but once I sort of start down a track, I get a sense of whether this is something that really excites me. Uh, or whether there's something else that, that excites me more. So I actually yeah, just applied for quite a lot of different jobs and tried to talk to lots of different people about their research and ultimately just, just went with what I found most exciting. Yeah, I think that's really valuable advice. Um, so jumping forward to today, um, since you have your research work and your um, lecturing that you do, uh, what does a typical day look like for you? 
Um, great question. Typical days. Uh, well, I guess typical is a bit more typical now that we're in, in a pandemic, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things I like about this, this job is that there's a huge variety in the things that you do. Um, at this point, it's really a huge variety in the people that you're talking to and the types of conversations that you're having. That you're having. Um, so for me, a, a typical day would involve quite a lot of meetings um, at this point, um, but that's the fun part for me. I enjoy talking to people about research ideas and uh, thinking about either new projects or thinking about papers or, uh, you know, introducing people to a field for the first time, um, for example, within teaching. So a typical day for me would probably involve at least three or four hours of meetings or teaching uh, or kind of one on one mentoring, uh, probably an hour to two of emails. And then if I'm lucky, <laughs> a bit of time to uh, work on a paper, uh, to work on some um, analyses, uh, some statistics, or you know, some other sort of, I guess, aspect of um, research administration. So if that's ethics applications, or sometimes it's grant applications, uh, those when they come up do tend to sort of dominate <laughs> time a bit more. You know, you need a lot of sort of time and headspace to to write a new grant application. Um, so typical, yeah, it, typically I'm at my computer and I'm talking to people. That's the most typical it gets, but the range of what we're doing, uh, you know, really varies depending on, on what's going on. You mentioned that there's a lot of different tasks involved in your um, daily routine, but um, how do you manage time for each one? Like, I'm assuming during like grant writing season, things pick up in that regard, but how are you able to um, manage your time both work-wise and personally um, and have that balance? Yeah, um, another very good question and I think a huge challenge. I think, you know, certainly for me at this career stage where, so I've been a lecturer for a little over two years now, um, so I'm still quite new to it where I'm sort of newer to the teaching and newer to the grant writing. Um, and so I think it's very easy for those sort of newer things to start to become a lot more dominant and take up a lot more time until you get um, a bit more used to them. Um, it's I'm not going to pretend it's something that I'm very good at <laughs> managing my time yet. I'm hoping uh, to improve. I think one thing for me that really helps is having um, colleagues who I can talk to who can give me advice and, and suggestions for how better to manage things, whether that's a case of, you know, helping me with teaching materials or, uh, you know, helping me think through a grant. I think putting some structure in place around, you know, knowing that I have someone to, to reach out to for help uh, if I'm feeling a little lost in something is really helpful for me. Um, so that sort of helps me kind of maintain a balance and sort of making progress towards whatever it is that I'm working on. Um, outside of that, in terms of a kind of work-life balance. Um, I try to be good about uh, turning my laptop off at say 6 or 7 p.m. I set a deadline and I just uh, I try and stick to that wherever I can. Um, I am more of an evening person than I am a morning person so my other strategy is to sort of take time off during the day when I know I'm going to be less productive so uh, I quite enjoy running so I quite often will go for a run in the middle of the day and then it's less it's less bad for me to work till 7 p.m. if I've had you know two hours off in the middle of the day. So I think 
you know, one of the benefits of a research career is that you can be quite flexible in terms of your time and managing your own time. So for me, I try and, you know, optimize the time that I'm working when I know I'm more likely to be productive and the times where I'm less productive, I'll make sure that I, I take a break and get some balance into my life that way. Yeah, great. Great advice. <laughs> um, it, I know I personally find it difficult to just switch off my laptop, yeah. um, but given that it's my source of work, entertainment, but then even when I'm watching TV on it, it's like, oh, but there's so much work I can do. So putting a, <laughs> a, a you know, just putting a full stop to that is probably a better solution <laughs> than what I'm doing at least. Yes, the best thing I ever did was delete the email app from my phone. So I can only look at emails on my laptop, not also on my phone. So. <laughs> You've mentioned the mentors that you have had in the past and now you're one. So I guess I want to ask, what qualities do you think makes a good mentor? Yeah, um, yeah so something I have actually been thinking about quite a lot the last couple of years now that I am more in the mentor than the mentee role. I do, of course, still have mentors and people that I uh, rely on for advice, which is always, ex uh, you know, really excellent to have a range of people you can talk to. So I guess um, one suggestion would be that you don't need to rely on a single person as a mentor. Um, you know, you can uh, for example, right now in my role, there are probably three or four people I regularly talk to <laughs> about things that are going on with my research or my work. Um, and depending on those you know, personal relationships, it might be that, you know, someone is a particular uh, expert in one research area. So that's more of what we would talk about, whereas another mentor might be sort of more helping me work through kind of work life, life balance stuff or sort of career progression stuff. So I think the first thing I would suggest is that you you don't need one person who's going to be able to do all of those things for you. And actually, I think you benefit a lot from getting a range of different perspectives um, and experiences. I think, you know, when you talk to one person, you get their story, but uh, you need to bear in mind that there's lots of other ways of doing things and other ways that people um, have made things work. So part of it is is getting a range of perspectives. I think within an individual for me I think the thing that's really important is um, feeling like you have space and that you feel comfortable talking to that person so that person is making some time for you it doesn't need to be that they talk to you for an hour every week to be a, an effective mentor you know a short 10 minute chat once a month can be as effective <laughs> with the right person as, as something more regular um, but I, again, it sort of comes down to that that relationship. Do you, is this someone who you feel listens to you and can kind of understand your position, even though it's maybe not the same as as their position or their experience? Um, and is it someone that you feel comfortable sort of just laying out whatever it is that you're concerned about? So if it's something that's, I guess, more personal to, to keep that information, uh, to themselves, um, but also that sort of understands me enough to to um, provide advice that's useful for me. Um, so being able to sort of someone who can sort of take your perspective on things, I think, is is a really valuable uh, trait and something that lots of people are very good at, but doesn't always happen um, for, for others. That's absolutely helpful. Um, I think it's crucial at all developmental ages and life points. Um, to find, to take that step back and to find people that you're able to connect with in that way to help guide and support you as well as then you can look back and share some of those memories and like continue that trend. 
Has working in the field of psychology impacted your perspective on mental health and well-being? Being in a clinical psychology lab and talking more about mental health um, brings this awareness to your own mental health that I certainly wouldn't say that I had studying it from a neuroscience perspective. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about uh, processes in the brain and how that works at a sort of physical level. But when you're actually sitting and going through lists of symptoms or thinking about an individual case study or somebody's own experience, I think it's much easier or sort of more natural to try and apply that um, to your own experiences and use that. Uh, I guess it, it's sort of a the sort of experience for me that made me reflect more about my own mental health and my own mental well-being. Um, and sort of being surrounded by clinical psychologists in that lab as well. There was a lot of emphasis on, you know, doing all these things we talked about in terms of taking care of yourself and trying to maintain a work-life balance and actually realizing that you're more likely to be more productive, more effective scientists if we take care of ourselves as individuals first. Um, so that was a sort of another kind of shift for me in terms of uh, the fields that I was working in and, and the different focuses that Certainly, I, I felt like I benefited a lot from 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 being in that more sort of clinical atmosphere for a while. Can you talk about the distinction between being a clinical psychologist and working in clinical research? Um, so it's definitely a distinction that is drawn uh, within psychology and a boundary that I've always found myself kind of balancing <laughs> along. Um, I think it, it also varies across countries. So in the UK, uh, doing a, a clinical doctorate to become a clinical psychologist is a three-year degree in itself and doing um, a research PhD is usually three or maybe four years. Um, so they are quite separated in that way. Um, it's not true the world over. In fact, in the US, uh, when you do a clinical uh, psychology PhD, it would be five or even six years if you add on it a year of internship. And it's very integrated between research and clinical work. So the entire time students are doing research projects as well as doing uh, training in clinical work. Um, and I think in the UK as well, as part of your clinical training, you would do a small research project, uh, but things wouldn't be as integrated as they would be um, in the States. Um, I think, though, that it is a bit of a false dichotomy as someone who hasn't done clinical training and does clinical research. Uh, and certainly I have a lot of colleagues who did clinical training and now do a lot of research. So there's definitely flexibility uh, in terms of how much you want to integrate um, the two pathways within your own work. You mentioned um, communication and open-mindedness, um, but do you have any other skills or attributes that you think um, people can cultivate to be a good clinical psychologist or to be a good researcher? Yeah. Um... Good question. Uh, so I guess I should have said at the start, I'm not a clinical psychologist. So I do clinical psychology research, but I'm not a clinician. Um, I guess, yeah. For me, and I don't know, this is maybe more of a personal thing than it is something that other people on your podcast might say. <laughs> but I think both to be um, to be an effective clinician and to be an effective scientist, I think curiosity is a really important driving factor. 
Um, it's something that's really hard to instill and something that I try and think about a lot uh, in teaching and in, in mentoring is trying to create an atmosphere of, you know, we're all just genuinely curious about the world around us, whether that's, you know, the person, the, the patient who you're seeing in a clinic, or whether that's about how this, you know, mysterious lump of flesh in our heads work or whatever it is. If we're genuinely curious about it, I think we're more likely to bring a sense of kind of open mindedness towards it, which um, is hugely beneficial scientifically, where we're not bringing sort of all our predetermined hypotheses and deciding how we're going to you know, design our experiment that we're most likely to find what we want to find. You know, we want to have that open minded curiosity, but I think it's also really important when we're um, interacting with others and when we're, I guess, also thinking in a, like a clinical context where we're trying to help others with their problems is bringing this kind of, uh, I guess, judgment-free curiosity to what's going on to try and sort of work from a problem-solving perspective um, and to gain a certain level of kind of understanding and rapport, uh, which I think applies both kind of across the clinic and in teaching, but also to research as well. I think we'll move on to the next section then, which is going to be led by Meg. So, firstly, um, there's plenty of myths in the field of psychology, um, particularly we see them lots on social media, um, and sometimes at A-level stage it's quite hard to tell the difference between facts and fiction. So, um, what would you say, um, or how would you react to the myth that psychology is for people who can't do well in biology? Yeah, that's... Uh... I guess that's a slightly newer version of the one I used to hear was that uh, psychology isn't a real science. That was what we always heard. <laughs> um, yeah, I I mean, with with all sorts of different subjects, you know, there's different things that each of us are interested in. And so maybe for someone who's really good uh, at, at biology, they think, you know, that's the way to go. Or someone who's really good at psychology thinks biology is too hard. I think that's all kind of a you know, a complete myth. I think in terms of subjects being hard, it's very much kind of what draws you in. I think the more you're interested in something, perhaps the easier it feels or, or the more you get into it, the more time you spend on it. And so um, it can feel uh, different levels of challenging. I think with psychology, though, there's um, kind of both a blessing and a curse in that psychology as a subject is so accessible uh, at a surface level because we're all kind of amateur psychologists. We all spend our days thinking about what other people are thinking, how other people see us, why people are acting in certain ways. And so I think that's one of the things that you know excites me about psychology is that it's something that we all relate to straight off the bat. I think it also makes it really challenging because um, it can lead to this assumption that we already know everything about psychology. And so it's an easy subject or it's, you know, it's not a real science. Um, and I think that's absolutely false. You know, uh, just thinking about how little we know about why someone reacts in one situation rather than another, thinking across the range of human behaviors, you know, everything from sort of criminal behavior to how we react emotionally in different stages, how we develop over time, you know, all the different experiences we have in relationships, the wealth of human experience that we're trying to explain within psychology is so vast. Uh, and we also have such a range of different tools we use as psychologists. So I guess I was talking about, you know, 
from thinking about clinical interventions on one end where we think about sort of talking therapies and how talking with a therapist can change you know your experience and your emotions right down to the other end of the spectrum where we're thinking about neuroscience and brains and cells and neurons you know that is biology as well <laughs> so it sort of covers such a vast uh, range of things as well that I think you know psychology is one of the most accessible but also one of the most vast uh, disciplines that we have. I think that's really good to know thanks. Um, so what advice would you give to your younger self if you could talk to your younger self again? Hmm, that is a tricky one. Uh, <laughs> um, I think uh, yeah the sort of bigger thing for me um, I've struggled with sort of self-confidence a lot at various stages and I think uh, within research uh, as well it can be quite a daunting or intimidating environment um, so I guess I would say to my younger self that I should go for it and that I should ask the question there are no stupid questions just ask your question. <laughs> yeah that's really good advice. Um, so, following on then, um, what do you want the next generation of psychologists to achieve? You're coming at me with all the hardest questions. This is really great. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, one of the biggest shifts that I think we could make as psychologists is to become um, more integrated both within our own fields, but also within with other disciplines. I think there's a lot of really exciting work happening kind of at the interface between two disciplines. So to, to give you an example, um, in terms of clinical psychology, there's a lot of really exciting work happening now in, th in terms of digital interventions. So working with digital companies and um, you know, app-based interventions to really improve um, accessibility uh, to psychological interventions for more people in a more equitable way. So that's one area that I think is a really exciting advance. And I think there's so much more we can learn as a discipline from integrating with behavioral scientists, from thinking more about things from a biological perspective, from thinking more about, you know, how to integrate psychology with the arts or with geography and sort of the experiences that we have in our daily lives. You know, I think psychology is everything we experience uh, on a day-to-day -day basis and I think the more that we can sort of bring together uh, understanding from different disciplines and work together to understand different perspectives um, I think it's just going to uh, strengthen our science but also strengthen our ability to improve people's lives. So I think this concludes our um, podcast today. Thank you so much for being so honest and for sharing your experiences in research um, and your career and for all the advice that you've offered. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me and for your uh, yeah, particularly challenging questions. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We've really enjoyed it and hope you did too. Follow us at PsychBusters on Instagram and at Buster Psych on Twitter. See you next time.